I'm here with William A. Thomas. He uh, has a doctorate in theology from the Angelicum, and he's uh, an expert on Mariology. He's done quite a bit of work here at the network in different ways. And I wanted to ask you, go by Tony, I wanted to ask you, Tony, about Fatima and the theme of light in Fatima. Uh, you've spoken about this. Tell us about it. Well, of course, what we have to do uh, initially is understand Fatima is in Portugal. And Fatima is a series of apparitions that began first with the Angel of Portugal, or Peace, in 1916, and culminating in the last public apparition, 1929. So Fatima has become the most urgent, the most important, uh, and the most dramatic of all Marian apparitions in the world to date. It comes with a very profound message uh, of Our Lady, the call to prayer, to conversion, to adoration, to reparation, to sacrifice. Fatima in itself contains an entire Marian spirituality. The call to pray the rosary every day is part and parcel of that. Fatima is a way where Our Lady creates a new pathway to God. Not a fifth gospel, but containing all the essential elements of the four gospels. But within Fatima, we find that Our Lady appears as a woman clothed in light brighter than the sun. Almost reminiscent of the book of Revelation, the woman clothed with the sun. And this description comes from the mouth of children who found that the light in which Our Lady was enveloped was so intense that they kept rubbing their eyes. They could not remain focused on it. And yet, from Our Lady, who uh, told them she came from heaven, and they asked the most profound and the most fundamental question. In the first apparition, little Lucia, who is 10 years old, probably speaks on behalf of all of us when she says, will I go to heaven? That is the kernel of the question of what Fatima is about. Will I go to heaven? Our Lady answers, giving them uniquely an absolute certitude of heaven, yes. But she asks a question. Again, this applies to each one of us. Are you willing to undertake all the sufferings that God wishes to send you as an act of reparation for the sins by which he is offended and for the conversion of sinners? In other words, Our Lady is asking, are you prepared to take up the cross? Because this is the only way we can get to heaven. This is the way that our Lord himself chose to carry the cross. But the cross that we are asked to carry is not an immense cross like his. It's our own personal cross. And therefore it's going to be much smaller. It will be, if you want, a key. A key that opens the narrow gate that nobody wishes to find in today's world. In the world of clutter. In the world without focus in the world without the primacy of God. And this key opens the narrow gate that leads a pathway under her maternal gaze. And we have our promise that her Immaculate Heart will be our refuge and the way that will lead us to God. And could you describe Portugal at the time of the apparition? Well, according to Lenin, and I hate to quote him, uh, Portugal was the most atheistic country in Europe at the time of the apparition. The communists uh, and atheists had seized power. The churches were banned and closed mm -hmm. 
and uh, no mass was to be celebrated. And yet, in the middle of all this, Our Lady comes in light, and the light extends from her hands into the children, enabling them, empowering them, infusing them with the love and knowledge of God. So they begin to understand the value of sacrifice, the notion of eternity, the necessity of prayer, the value of love. And in all of this, they become the youngest child uh, saints that the world uh, has known, the non-martyred saints. And because of them and their prophetic dimension, Fatima has become a light shining on world history in order that we do not despair. And the world today despairs. It despairs because they no longer know God. They no, no, no longer know where they're going. And yet their soul desires to know him. Their soul longs to hear that they are loved. Because we're not here forever. We're here on a journey, a pilgrim journey, and we're facing eternity. And where is that eternity? Is it going to be heaven or somewhere else? And the only other place is hell. So we must make a decision in our lives as to where we want to go. Our Lady comes on behalf of God to warn humanity uh, to turn back to God. Fatima is pretty much not only uh, an, 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 an analysis of where we stand before God. Uh, our Lady reminds us more, sin, more souls go to hell because of sins of the flesh than any other sin. Why? Because sins of the flesh are opposed to holiness, to which we are all called. And you are also uh, something of an expert on Lourdes. And can you tell us about maybe some of the fundamental themes in Lourdes that Our Lady wanted to tell us? Well, in Lourdes, we will celebrate in the year 2018 the 160th anniversary of the apparitions of Our Lady of Lourdes. Uh, the Our Lady of Lourdes comes comes to confirm the dogma four years earlier, uh, uh, promulgated by Pope Pius IX, that she was conceived without sin. She was the Immaculate Conception. And in 1858, she appears <coughs> on the 11th of February, the first apparition, of which there were 18, the first of 18 apparitions, to a young girl by the name of Bernadette Subarus. Many people would say Subaru. Well, Subaru is the French. Mm -hmm. Subarus is the patois, or the language of the Pyrenees. And she appears to, her, to Bernadette, and eventually she tells Bernadette uh, who she is. Mm -hmm. But she calls for people, personal invitation, tell the people to come here uh, to wash at the fountain, to walk in procession and tell the priest to build a church to make the sacraments available. And this is a compassionate mother who knows of the suffering of humanity. And she provides uh, in Lourdes the miraculous spring, which has been responsible for the healings of many, not only physical, spiritual, emotional, and mental. On the 25th of March uh, in 1858, Bernadette asks her, having asked her already, and she didn't give an answer. But on this particular day, Bernadette asks her, because the parish priest wants to know, who is this lady that is asking these people to come here and walk in procession and so on? Who is this lady? So Bernadette asks her, and she says, 
Please, madam, she said, will you tell me who you are? And the lady smiles, and Bernadette insists, Oh, please, madam, will you please tell me who you are? And again Our Lady smiles. And then Bernadette describes this sudden impulse within her, with the words rolling off her lips, Oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, dear lady, please tell me who you are. And in that moment, Our Lady's posture and poise, everything changed. And looking up to heaven with her hands opened and a voice quivering with emotion, she says in the patois, Qui soyera immaculata concepciao. I am the Immaculate Conception. And there's the revelation of who she is. Mm. Extraordinary. The greatest of all of all of God's creation in Our Lady. She loves him more than all of creation in all time put together. She, Her heart perfectly mirrors the sacred heart of Jesus. And they have become inseparable. And to love Our Lady is to love Jesus because she leads us to him. To exclude Our Lady from our lives is really to exclude Jesus as Son of Mary. And if we talk about Jesus without Mary, then the Jesus we speak about is the Jesus of our own imagination. You said something interesting the other night, too, about uh, John Paul's encyclical on Our Lady, Mother of the Redeemer, that it was a very, from a St. Louis de Montfort perspective. Talk about that. Well, I was asked uh, uh, on the Mitch Pacwa show, EWTN Live, to describe the Mariology of Pope John Paul II. <coughs> well, of course, we know there are many great writers in Mariology, going right back to, even if we want to talk about the, the, the dogmas, the Theotokos, of uh, 432, or the the dogmas of her perpetual virginity in the Council of the Lateran, or subsequently uh, the Immaculate Conception, or her assumption into heaven with Munificentissimus Deus in 1950 of Pius XII. So we the, and and we have many titles are related to be found in the liturgy. We know also uh, the oldest prayer that has been written that we know of is the Subtuum Presidium, which was found in Egypt in the year 250, and it was already a great devotion to her. Uh, but when it comes to John Paul, uh, he doesn't go back to the medieval Mariologists like Suarez or Bellarmine or uh, some of these, because <coughs> their um, Mariology can be understood as highly academic and, and very arid, dry. Uh, in other words, to be able to take from Suarez and give it to the guy on the street uh, is an impossibility. And so there has to be a kind of a meeting somewhere between popular piety and academic. In Fatima, and this is the key, uh, Our Lady tells us that God wishes to be, God wishes to establish devotion to her immaculate heart in order that she be known and loved. So we have two entities, known, the knowledge of, and love, the devotion to. Mm. And so um, in the uh, encyclical Redemptoris Mater, uh, Pope John Paul indicates, because it's a kind of an encyclopedic summary of all of the writers of, uh, of Our Lady, that his uh, real uh, focus of Mariology is through Louis de Montfort from where he gets his motto, totus tuus ergo sum, 
I am totally yours. And he really consecrates from the time he was nine, when his mother died on the 13th of April, 1929. And he has a sufficient grace to go as a nine-year-old who's just lost his mother to console his father and tell his father, this is God's will. And, you know, consecrates himself uh, to Our Lady, taking her as the new mother, his mother. And, and from there, he begins to read Louis de Montfort. And he doesn't get it the first time. He admits himself mm-hmm. he had to read it three times before he realizes this is a wonderful work in Mariology. It's a compendium of the life of Mary, on the devotion to Mary, true devotion to Mary, as opposed to the false devotions that exist mm-hmm. today. <coughs> is it 431 or 432 for Theotokia? Uh, 432. What's 431? Wasn't there something in... Uh, <laughs> Probably the Super Bowl in <laughs> Texas. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, 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 it may very well have been 431, but uh, I know St. Patrick is supposed to have come to Ireland in 432, <laughs> so maybe at this moment of uh, having a flu I may have confused <laughs> it, but I do think it was 432. And you said... About John Paul, I remember you told us one time about his personal devotion that as Pope, he had a place he'd go to pray in the country at a cave. Tell us about that. Well, uh, the night he was elected Pope, which was the 16th of October, uh, 1978, and very much like Pope Benedict, who did the identical thing, he slipped away to 40 miles away from Rome Mm -hmm. to a place called Mentorella. And there you find the sanctuary run by the Polish priests for the last 120 years uh, where there's a beautiful image or statue of Our Lady of Grace. It's near Tivoli, but it's very high up in the mountains. And he would like to sneak out of the Vatican to go there to pray because of its silence. Mm-hmm. In fact, he was a mystic and he would contemplate. And oftentimes he would stay out all night under the stars under a tree, in prayer. Mm. And that's what he liked to do, to to get the spiritual strength to face the challenges of the world. Mm. So he very much depended on Our Lady. And we know in his apostolic trips around the world, where he visited over the 26 years of his pontificate, he visited 129 countries. Mm. And part of the agenda was to go to the Marian sanctuary of that country and to pray to Mary, to entrust and renew his consecration to her and the consecration of the particular country he was in. And we know, of course, from the 25th of March, 1984, he consecrated the entire world, including Russia, which he did in pectore Mm -hmm. to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, according to the requirements of the consecration. Uh, and confirmed by Sister Lucia the following day in a phone call with him. It was done according to the requirements that Our Lady had stipulated. And I I know you've been to Poland. Was there any reflections or thoughts you had on on their Marian piety? I know Czestochowa and so I remember reading Weigel's biography on Pope John Paul. He quoted him as saying that I'm a man of great trust, and I learned it here, you know, Czestochowa. But tell us about that Polish piety. Well, Czestochowa uh, is, is uh, 
really the Virgin of Hope. Mm. And uh, she was the great hope for Poland mm. while they were <coughs> under oppression. Uh, Poland, from the time of Kashmir, Kashmir II, uh, until the Nazi invasion, uh, was very Catholic. And uh, it, it still produces great Catholic priests and great Catholic theologians. Uh, it's part of their culture. It's part of their identity. Uh, Mary has been pretty much there in the mix. Uh, so there's never been a time when they have not trusted in Mary. Uh, you know, in the early church, for example, the sub-apostolic fathers, like Cyril of Antioch and Cyril of Jerusalem, would have promoted a devotion called the devotion to the three white doves. The three white doves were devotion to the Holy Eucharist, devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and devotion to the Holy Father. And if you really want to have a good Catholic mind and a good Catholic heart, then they have to be the essential devotions that you have. And they are the devotions of Poland. And that's what make, makes them very much Catholic. Now, you're from Ireland, grew up in Ireland. Uh, tell us about Our Lady of Knock. Well, we have a Marian sanctuary in Ireland, and most countries do. Like in England, you have Walsingham. And here in the United States, you have Our Lady of Good Help up in Green Bay Diocese in a place called Champion, Wisconsin. Our Lady of Knock uh, comes uh, in an apparition that lasted several hours on the uh, 21st of August, uh, the vigil of the Queenship of Mary on the 22nd, um, in 1879. And she appears there in a static uh, um, apparition, uh, along with St. Joseph and uh, <coughs> the Lamb, the Altar, and the Angels, and more than likely St. Patrick, mm. uh, in, in, and, and was witnessed by about 15 people. So we have the testimonies of those 15 people. It has become Ireland's national shrine, and it's open year-round. It attracts pilgrims who go there. Recently, they have refurbished the basilica. We only have two basilicas in Ireland, uh, which is a travesty in itself. One of them is Knock, and the other is St. Patrick's Purgatory, where people go to purgatory for a couple of days. And uh, I, as far as I know, it's the only place of purgatory on the planet. That's Loch Derg? Correct, yeah, Loch Derg. Yeah. Uh, well worth a visit if you feel that you need to do <laughs> penance. Uh, when I went there, I went to write about it, so I insisted on a double bed and <laughs> four square meals a day. But people who go there, uh, go there penitentially, and they don't eat for the day before they go. They remove their shoes, and they don't sleep that night. They spend the whole night in prayer, followed by black tea and dry toast. And uh, then they're allowed to leave. But that's their penance. Yeah. How would you describe the Marian devotion, uh, traditional Marian devotion of Ireland? Well, it's very much similar to the Marian devotion of, of um, Poland. And the spirituality of the Polish is identical to the Irish spirituality. <clears throat> Simply because for many years we have suffered terrible persecution. We've, we've been under persecution by... Um, the English for 800 years, when they usurped the Catholic Church completely, replacing it with, with a facsimile church called the, um, the uh, Anglican Church or the Church of England, mm -hmm. but they called it the Church of Ireland. But the Church of Ireland was the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So anyway, um, so, so Mariology in the world today, alas, is diminishing. It's not growing. Devotion to Mary is not growing. Uh, and it needs to grow, and people need to really look again at Fatima, pray the rosary every day for peace, peace in your own life, peace in your family, and peace in the world. If you, for example, <clears throat> decide, I don't need to pray because I've got everything I need, well, in charity, you could pray for the children in Yemen who are dying of cholera, or people who are starving to death, or people who are imprisoned unjustly, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you can pray for others, pray for the church, pray for the world, pray for the poor souls in purgatory. So don't be selfish, but prayer always solicits graces from heaven. And, you know, by our prayers, many are receiving the graces of conversions. Mm -hmm. You know, monastics in particular and the mendicant orders have always drawn down from heaven graces not for themselves but for the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they appease the majesty and justice of God and invoke his mercy by the donation of their lives mm -hmm. and by the self-giving and self-sacrifice. And, you know, really and truly, it's, it's wonderful to see. It's wonderful to see when I go to Detroit and I, I see I go to Ann Arbor and I see 150 young nuns and postulants, beautiful women giving of themselves of their futures for God. It's very inspiring. And yet it is somehow necessary. And that's why God gives the special grace of a vocation to them, you know. And you're seeing something of a resurgence in Ireland, aren't you, in Catholic participation in life and things? Well, certainly uh, because of EWTN, I believe that the faith in Ireland has been maintained. We haven't lost it. Were it not for networks like EWTN and CTV, the Vatican Television Service and whatnot, uh, then people would have had no exposure uh, through the media. Uh, of Catholic services and events and things that happen. And, and therefore, it, it is a big factor in the revival of uh, Catholicism in Ireland. As you know, we have conflict with uh, Protestants and those who want to destroy cultural Marxism, uh, the media. They're all anti-Christ. They're all attacking the faith of people, ridiculing it and so on. So it's great to see something in the media that is truthful and honest and, and, uh, and uh, that we can follow and be inspired by. So, yeah, uh, as a result of which, vocations are beginning to filter back, particularly with the Dominicans, who are getting between 20 and, and uh, 30 per year. Uh, and the Franciscans are getting a few, not too many, but it seems like people are going into the Dominican order because of the particular devotion to the rosary. Mm. I'm convinced of that. And then others are dying out. The Augustinians are dying out. They don't have a Marian devotion in particular, mm. and, and that's one of the reasons. Um, and others have just, the redemptorists are dying out completely. Um, uh, but again, others are reviving. The contemplative orders are getting vocations. People are entering monasteries. And uh, so it's a wonderful thing. We have the second language of Ireland now is Polish. And uh, it's wonderful to see we have hundreds of thousands of Poles. And they brought with them many of their own clergy. And they brought with them the great devotions of Poland, especially to Our Lady. And I'm ecstatic at that. Mm -hmm. And in most of the Polish parishes now, you'll find an image of Our Lady of Czestochowa. And they really celebrate this feast with great solemnity 
our mother of hope. You don't have a large Muslim immigration there? Well, well, there are Muslims in Ireland, but you, Ireland traditionally has been known as Hibernia, uh, is the Latin word, and Hibernia means the land of winter. And so because we're surrounded by water and we are the land of winter, there are many people that don't want to come to Ireland, you know. They like to go to London because there are greater opportunities in London. It's a bigger city of 20 million and, uh, and there's plenty of money to be made there. I live in the west of Ireland, you know, and it can be bleak in the wintertime. And unless you have some inspiring things uh, to do and to be keep yourself occupied, it can be, you know, a very dark place in the winter. If you ever need a pick-me-up, a vacation, you go to Loch Derg, is there? <laughs> no, I, I take a two-hour trip down to Fatima or down to Lourdes or down to Rome, um, usually about two hours from Dublin. Yeah. You know, I was in Fatima just after the Pope was there in May, like four or five days, and then we went to Lourdes a few days later, and I was, and there might have been an overflow from people coming from Fatima, but I couldn't believe the number of people in Lourdes. I mean, it was like packed just during the week. It seems like, I, I thought it was a great sign of hope that this shrine is still drawing so many people. Every diocese from Ireland that I know, and from the UK, and, and I can only speak on those, I, well, I, I can speak also for the French. Every diocese that I know in Europe sends pilgrims between April and October, to Lourdes. And in that short time, seven million people converge on Lourdes every year. And they come, the healthy come, the young people come, the sick come. They come on ambulance trains, they come on special flights, and they, Broncardier or Hospitalité Notre Dame de Lourdes, uh, assist. Uh, so. Anybody who wants to come to Lourdes, you have a personal invitation from Our Lady who says, tell the people to come here. And so that applies. Can you tell us, I think you were mentioning to us the other night, um, outside the papal apartments, John Paul had put this um, portrait of Our Lady, I forgot what they call it. Then in Rome, you see on the outside of buildings like a mosaic, tile mosaic. Yeah. Yes. Can you tell us about the one he had installed? I think it was after he was shot and yeah. recovered. Well, at a general audience, a student from the North American College had mentioned to the Pope that <clears throat> in all of St. Peter's Square, there was no image of Our Lady, and it felt void and barren and desolate without her. And he picked up on that and used Our Lady Help of Christians with his motif underneath totus tuus mm -hmm. and placed it on the wall of the side of the apostolic palace overlooking St. Peter's Square. Mm -hmm. And it remains there now until the end of the world. And uh, was there also some connection with Our Lady's mother of the church with that image that you know of? Or? Uh, well, she's the mother and child rather than the mother on her own. Okay. And so, I mean, you can, you, Our Lady under whatever title she is, is the mother of the church, right. you know. And that's part of the, ecclesi uh, the uh, ecclesiological aspect of Mariology, to look at her, as we know from Lumen Gentium, uh, chapter 8, yeah. that uh, she was proclaimed uh, in the Second Vatican Council to be the mother of the church. Yeah. But it was always held, even from the time of St. Ambrose, yeah. 
that she was the mother of the church. Mm -hmm. So the church takes its time in these proclamations and definitions, but eventually we get there, you know, yeah. And I, I, I read like during Vatican II, I don't know if it was between the third and fourth session, the bishops asked Paul VI to make a statement about her being mother of the church, he kind of just put a little force behind it and are you familiar with that? Yeah, well, uh, you know, there are always requests, even to today, there are many requests that go to Rome to proclaim another dogma, for example, uh, the co-redemptrix. But the problem is that many of these people who ask for another dogma or another definition don't know the first four. Uh, you know, the, the, the mother of God, they don't know what that means, Theotokos. They don't know anything about her Per perpetual virginity, pre-partum, in-partum, po post-partum, and, and uh, they, they, they know nothing of her assumption and what that means, uh, and, and so on. So you're left in, in a kind of a void as to, if we understood these dogmas, and if we took them to heart, mm -hmm. then, then we would know um, uh, exactly who Our Lady is, uh, just in the dogmas alone. Right. So part of the message of Fatima is that she be known and then loved. Not, the problem with the modern world is there's too much popular piety and no knowledge. Mm -hmm. And where that leads is we end up with emotion before devotion. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a kind of a personal thing that, that any celebration of Our Lady becomes an emotional issue. And it's very selfish. It's all about what do I get out of it? What do, you know, instead of the devotion proper, which should be constant and uh, not necessarily consoling. We always want to have something whereby we are consoled. If we take, for example, the life of Teresa of Calcutta, she admits that throughout her life with the poorest of the poor, she received no consolation whatsoever. Maybe we'll, we'll end with this. You've got an incredible personal story. You're raised in an orphanage and through scholarship and things. You got an education. You wind up getting a doctorate at the Angelicum, one of the premier schools in Rome, and you dedicate your life to serving the church. And you do it with Irish wit and good humor. <laughs> Tell, and I, I love that about the church, that it just brings together all these different peoples. And it's a place of great comedy at times and maybe tragedy, sadly. But Tell us about, I don't know, just surviving some of the fallenness in the church and keeping a good humor about it. Well, I think humor comes from God. I often say God has a great sense of humor. He created me. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that uh, you have to have a sense of humor. You have to have an ability to play on words because there is a battle of good and evil taking place in the world today. And if we allow ourselves to be crushed by the evil events, the mass murders, the wars, and all of that, we probably would never get out of bed. But we are children of light. We are children of hope. And we hope in greater days and better things and divine intervention in our lives, the graces given. And if we say our fiat to God and entrust our lives to him, then he makes everything happen. As Congar would say, nothing happens by accident. Everything happens by divine providence. It's because God wants it to happen. And so I very much believe in that. It's part of my life. And my fiat is completely yes to God. No matter what suffering may come along, I take it on the chin. And whatever doors are opened, uh, I, would, I would accept. If a good bishop came along to me as a single man and said, 
I want you to be a priest in my diocese. I would see that as a sign. And, uh, but it never happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the thing of it is, or the religious life, nobody ever asked me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was often, I was often uh, fascinated by Fulton Sheen, who, uh, who would ask people, would you like to be a Catholic? And uh, I think in every occasion, he said yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they said yes to him. Uh, the other day, I was up at Cullman Abbey in Alabama, and uh, there was a lady there uh, sitting at the table with her rosary beads in her hand. And I said to her, pray one for me, please. Mm-hmm. And she said, I will. Mm-hmm. And then she said, I've been praying the rosary for 10 years. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. And uh, so I said, you, you have a devotion to Our Lady. She said, yes, but I feel guilty about it. I said, why? Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm not a Catholic, I'm a Protestant. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, well, you ought to be a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And when I come back here next year, I want you to be a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And she said, how can, how can that be possible? Mm-hmm. I said, you go and ask Brother Christopher mm-hmm. to help you to become a Catholic mm-hmm. and to have the fullness of the sacramental life, and your journey to heaven will be made much easier. And that's a good note to end on. Thanks so much for chatting with us, Tony.